0: In this episode of the Granta podcast, we listen to False Blood by Will Self, which was originally published in Granta 117, our horror issue. Reading the story is Max Porter, author of Grief is a Thing with Feathers and winner of the 2016 Dylan Thomas Prize. This is False Blood by Will Self from Granta Magazine 117, Horror. Horror. Sometime over the winter of 2010-11, to 11, I began to be gorged with blood, or rather my blood itself began to be gorged with red blood cells with haemoglobin. I didn't pay it much attention, mostly because I didn't realise it was happening, the only perceptible symptoms being a certain livid tinge to my face and to my hands, which, I joked to family and friends, had started to resemble those pink marigold washing-up gloves. When I took my gorged hands out of my jeans' pockets, the tight denim hems left equally vivid bands smeared across their backs. These, I facetiously observed, were the colour of those yellow marigold washing-up gloves. I had no intention of doing anything about my pink and yellow striped hands. This is not, I stress, because I'm especially neglectful of my health, at times I converge on hypochondria, but rather because they didn't strike me as obviously cancerous. I was on the lookout for the crab, but then I always am. It scuttled away my father and mother, the latter at sixty five, an age she would have described herself, also facetiously, as getting younger. And during the preceding year, it had been nipping at my forty seven year old wife, trying to drag her down the Sable Strand and into the salt, chill waters that lap against life. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer in June of 2010 had a mastectomy in August, followed by a gruelling autumn, then winter of chemotherapy and a silent spring of radiation. My wife bore her illness in a manner that demanded nothing but admiration. As we walked down the grotty staircase of Guy's Hospital Tower from the consultation where she'd been informed of how radical her surgery would need to be, she turned to me and said, I'm so lucky. If it was 25 years ago or I was somewhere else in the world, I'd have just received a death sentence. "'I imagined that if they had cut out her heart instead of cutting off her breast, "'they would have found devoid of self-pity written on it. "'I was less sanguine, metaphorically speaking. "'I felt distracted and doomy. "'I was a dilatory carer and at times seemingly willfully inept. "'I could just about manage the basics, "'the feeding and dressing of our two younger children, "'and the forcing upon her of increasingly unwanted cups of tea. "'It didn't help that we seemed to be at the epicentre of a cancer cluster.' One friend was dying of leukaemia in the Hammersmith Hospital. Another was in the process of being diagnosed. A third had had half his throat and jaw chopped out. Cancer, I hear you ask. Yes, of course it was fucking cancer. What else could it be? I fully expected cancer myself. Paraphrase the late and greatly pathetic Rue Willie Donaldson, you cannot live as I have and not end up with cancer. There was the genetic factor to begin with. And then there's been the toxic landscape of carcinogens. The yards of liquor, the sooty furlongs left behind by chaste heroin, the miles driven and limped for over a decade to score crack, which then scoured its way into my lungs, the prosaically giant hay sacks of Virginia tobacco hardly bear mentioning, being, in contrast, merely bucolic. No, I was on the lookout for the crab, not a pair of lobster's claws. It was my wife who eventually sent me across the road to the GP, a shrewdly downbeat practitioner who in the past had declined to check my cholesterol levels. No need, you've cut your smoking right back, you're thin and fit and your blood pressure's low, or send me for a prostate cancer biopsy. Too many false negatives, so there's hardly any point. But now, took one look at the human intercrustation transmogrification and sent me straight down to St Thomas's for a blood test. The results came within a couple of days, and when I saw him in person, he confirmed what he told me over the phone. Your haemoglobin is right up, and your white blood cell count is also elevated. I can't be certain, but I think there's a strong possibility it's—I preempted him—Polycythema vera. Aha, he said. Been googling, have you? I conceded that I had. Well, he continued, the wiki entries are pretty thoroughly vetted. If you stick to that, you're on safe ground. I inwardly congratulated myself for having done just that. But still, polycythemia vera, what was that? A disease that sounded like a Greek goddess spliced with an East End pub landlady. A disease that resulted from a single gene mutating and instructing your bone marrow to indulge in a mindless overproduction of red blood cells. A disease that was rare chronic, incurable, and, while no one yet understood the exact reasons for the mutagenesis, disproportionately present among Ashkenazi Jews. I liked that. In my transgenerationally facetious way, my mother had passed a generous dose of Jewish anti-Semitism down to me, and along with it, this Jewish disease had been bred in the bone. My blasé general practitioner sent me on my way. I had to go to the Ukraine on a journalistic assignment. Was it all right to fly, what with my thickened blood and the consequent increased risk of stroke, heart attack or deep vein thrombosis? Oh yes, he airily waved a papery hand. People don't get DVT from flying, they get it from sitting still. Just make sure you keep moving. When my wife was having her operation, the windows of her surgical ward at St Thomas's looked out over the imperious clutter of central London, jumbled in the bends of the Thames its giant ferris wheel and hypertrophied concrete bunker of a theatre, its recently whitened kingly sepulchre and its admiral-tipped bodkin. When my friend was having half his tongue and throat chopped out at University College Hospital, I went to visit him and found he had a still more spectacular view, south-facing from the Euston Road, the grid pattern of Bloomsbury and Marylebone seeming into the hugger-mugger from which Spears, Senate House and Centrepoint Point further off sprouted the thicket of the city while the North Downs smeared greenly along the horizon. It occurred to me then that, for a Londoner, serious illness often afforded this curious discombobulation as one became a tourist in one's own city, resident for a week or two in a subsidised hostel conveniently located for all the visitor attractions. And so, as I rose up from the bowels of London Bridge Tube Station en route to my first hospital appointment... I toyed with the idea of turning left and heading for the London dungeon, instead of right to the guy's haematology day unit. I'd never bothered to visit the dungeon before, but its cheesy tableau of caged, flayed and beheaded dummy felons spattered with ersatz gore would probably be a nice distraction from the far more veridical guignol that awaited me. Tunnelling out from the station to ground level, I found myself in St Thomas Street, hard against the soaring, glassy flank of the Shard, the city's latest indulgence in postmodernist desktop toy ornamentation. Its star Renzo Piano has spoken of how, when completed, the 87-storey building, the European Union's highest, will appear altogether insubstantial, tapering away into expressive angles of glazing within which the cityscape will be reflected. But I could apprehend nothing of this nothingness. In my current state the shard was notable only for being acuminate a vast hypodermic needle lancing up into the cloudy tissue of the sky. I've never really understood those who can read a lot of poetry. To do so would be akin to overdosing on metaphoric truffles so rich in this semiotic food. First encountered in my twenties, Ruthka's dollar has sated me for half a lifetime, and I regurgitated yet again as I mounted the iron stairs to the second-floor entrance of the hospital's Southwark wing. Desolation in immaculate public places. Lonely reception-room. Lavatory. Switchboard. The unalterable pathos of basin and pitcher. Is this not, I mused, the real horror of the affluent West?' its shameless juxtaposition of the mass repetition with the individual sickening. And I have seen dust from the walls of institutions, finer than flour, alive, more dangerous than silica. The sign above a door read Spiritual Care, but a steel shutter had been rolled over it, and through a hole in this I could see a combination lock. On the stairs, there was a taped-up piece of A4 paper advising me to go up and down them for ten minutes a day if I wanted to maintain good cardiac health. Elsewhere in the corridors, other notices signposted Domestic Waste or alerted me to upcoming events such as Tracheotomy Study Day. On the fourth floor, I could turn left to the Blood Bank or right to Hematology 2. In front of me, piled together with cardboard boxes and abandoned computer equipment, on the filmy beige linoleum tiling were some nylon bags about eighteen inches cubed. White ones were labelled buffy coats, red ones platelets. This was the realm of the logical positivists, I thought. Every object comes provided with its own caption, so meaning is implicit. I had trafficked in disease as a metaphor for twenty years now, grafting the defining criteria of pathologies, their etiology, their symptoms, their prognoses and their outcomes, onto phenomena as diverse as the human psyche and the urban fabric, yet now I had a disease that seemed to me to be a metaphor, although of what exactly I couldn't yet divine. I found myself in a viscid substrate cultured with rapidly multiplying literalisms. When I told friends about my condition and what the most effective therapy for it was, they all, all said the same thing. What? You have to get bled? What will they do that with, leeches? I found this stereotypy infuriating and wondered what its cause could be. Was it that buried beneath a thin skin of acquired medical knowledge there lay the heart of Garland beating in black bile? Or was it simply that they'd heard leeches were once again being used in some contemporary procedures and wanted to show they were au fait? I applied the cigarette end of my contempt to my friend's imagined leeches. How big a leech would be required, I spat at them, given that they've got to take two pints a week out of me. No, they use a needle, and a big one, since my blood is currently as thick as tomato puree. This silenced them. But then nobody talks about therapeutic bleeding much although it transpired that a neighbour of mine, tall, eccentric, with the carelessly drawn appearance of a Quentin Blake children's illustration, was also having his blood regularly siphoned off. I encountered him outside his double-fronted and unrendered house, and he jollily recounted how his haemochromatosis meant he had to have a pint taken out every now and then. I've got a friend at King's, he said, who does it in a room cupboard for me. Not strictly allowed, but there you go. Anyway, he lets me take the blood away with me so I can put it on my pumpkins." He gestured to his front steps, where every autumn a gaggle of the engorged and vampiric gourds clustered. "It really is the most excellent fertilizer." This Adams family domesticity was cheering, and I could understand why my neighbour's pumpkins thrived on his blood, given that his condition meant it was iron enriched. But what conceivable use would I find for my own rubicund brew? On at least four of the sixteen occasions between April and July that I went to Guy's for my venice sections, I was accosted outside the McDonald's on St Thomas Street by the same young man. He was well-spoken, if shabbily dressed, and had the limp-scrape gait and the paradoxical features, at once sharply etched and poorly registered, of the street junkie. Each time he asked me for change, and each time I asked him if he had a drug problem. The first time he denied this, I told him, Sorry, I only give money to people who have a drug problem. So predictably, he backpedalled. No, 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 I do have an habit. Addiction being such a great leveller, it planes away even the ability to detect irony. Then I zeroed in for the kill. I'm sorry again, but I don't give money to liars. And he desperately rejoined. I just don't like to admit it straight up. You know what people are like. Finally, I relented and gave him a pound coin or two before subjecting him in a time-honoured Sally Army way to an homily in return for his handout. I told him how I, too, had once been where he was, a heroin addict, on and off for twenty years, but that I had been clean now for almost twelve. I told him that if he wanted to get clean and stay that way, all he had to do was follow some remarkably simple steps, the first of which was to make the admission that he was indeed an addict, rather than lying about it to himself and the world. Of course, the second time I saw the junkie, he recognised me halfway through the exchange, and the third time we chatted away like old acquaintances about all the insuperable barriers there were to his taking my blindingly simple advice. The fourth time I saw him, I just handed him the money. I was tiring of the charade, both his and mine. I first stuck a needle in my arm in the summer of 1979. I was seventeen years old. I often think back with a protective tenderness towards my younger self and wish I were somehow able to dissuade him from such a mutilation, from breaking the blood-air barrier in that crazy way. Sometimes when I hear people without experience of addiction blame addicts for their behaviour, I feel like saying to them, you simply don't understand. How can a child be held responsible for doing such a dreadful thing to himself? But then again, other times I have to acknowledge it was done willfully. No matter how obscured they were by the fogs of adolescent self-deception, I was fully acquainted with the facts. My concern here isn't with addiction to drugs, although that horror has cast a long shadow over my life and the lives of my family, and infiltrated my fictive inscape, poisoning its field margins, salting its earth. No, my concern is with addiction to needles, The addiction to transfusing solutions of heroin or cocaine or amphetamine into my own blood was anterior, but the obsession with the hypodermic and the compulsion to drive it home followed with inexorably maddening logic. I was never good at shooting up, a deranging oxymoron if ever there was one. In a way, I think this was deliberate. To be inefficient at it was another form of denying that I was really an addict, akin to never having a methadone prescription or shoplifting. I taught myself to do it and quickly transformed my skinny arms into an applique of scabs, sores, blotches and welts. I've never been good at DIY. To give herself an effective hit, the drug user must apply a tourniquet, raise a vein, probe with the needle, neatly pierce the epidermis and the wall of the vein, watch for the smoky plume of blood to rise up through the needle and into the barrel of the syringe, release the tourniquet, then push the plunger home. A practised self-injector will slightly depress the plunger of the hypodermic, then deftly pull it a little way out. Depress it a little more, pull it out again. In so doing, the barrel will become suffused with blood, while the inrush of the drugs take place with a mounting rhythm of successive waves. In the bankrupt trade of self-annihilation, closing down sale, all scruples must go, this technique is known as flushing the works and some habitués compare its effects to the gathering tempo of an orgasm, especially when the solution in the syringe is compounded of heroin and cocaine, a so-called speedball. I last shot a speedball in the summer of 1992, and indeed, I think that may well have been the last time I ever injected drugs at all. At any rate, I have no memory of doing it thereafter. In part I stopped because I'd had a period off drugs altogether in the late 80s and although I was sliding headlong back into addiction I knew that this practice was giving it a shot in the arm, metaphorically speaking. But I had also desisted because by then the laborious home chemistry of freebasing cocaine, my favourite snuffle, had given way to the preter porter of crack and this was quite as speedily an effective drug delivery system. What matter? The facts are these. For a decade or so, I stuck needles in my arms, my hands, my feet, and on one particularly weird occasion, my penis. I schlepped across town in all weathers to buy needles and syringes from halls off Shaftesbury Avenue or the aptly named Bliss Chemists, which had branches at Marble Arch and on Willston Lane, because these were the only outlets in London that sold them over the counter, no questions asked. For a junkie who was bad at shooting up, I was peculiarly fastidious. I knew all about the risks from septicemia to dirty hits when bacteria are injected along with drugs, and viruses such as hepatitis B initially, then latterly hep C and HIV. I took precautions to guard against these maladies, such as using sterile needles whenever possible, and if I couldn't, cleaning the old works with bleach in solution. Most fortuitously, I hardly ever shared needles. Indeed, I can only remember doing this on two or perhaps three occasions, but it's significant that one of these involved a flea's progress of the syringe. It sucked me first, and now sucked thee, and in this flea are two bloods mingled, B, between two fellow addicts, both of whom subsequently turned out to have hepatitis C. Then on to me. I was lucky. HIV is comparatively feeble anyway, although intravenous drug use remains a royal road for its progress. But hepatitis C was, is, and always will be, a devilish shapeshifter of a virus. Tough, long-lived, ever-mutating. A grape shot of these virions cut a broad suede through my generation of IV drug users. So broad that to be hep C-free is almost the exception. I was lucky. I had spent long nights shooting cocaine every 15 minutes or so until my arms were as luridly wounded as those of a persecuted medieval saint. I had poised with a syringe full of coke stuck in my arm for the long, heart-thudding moments, conscious that if I depressed the plunger I'd have a heart attack or a stroke. I had become so fixated on this perversion of medical therapeutics that I found myself on several occasions when I didn't have the wherewithal, boiling up the old bits of cigarette filter through which the scuzzy drugs had been drawn off. Mixing this substrength potion with citric acid, used to facilitate the dissolving of the brown, a less refined form of heroin, then shooting this up. A process I repeated several times over until I was injecting more or less pure citric acid, which burned bitterly through my traumatised veins. I shot up and up and up and up, then fell back to earth and was left with nothing more troubling than fading external track marks and thrombosis around the veins I had used most frequently. Not for me the arterial groin shot gone wrong that leads to amputation, or the Christian F-style neck shot that leads, presumably, to decapitation. Old junkie spoke of the fine deposits left by repeated injections at the top of the heart that years later descended, finer than flour, alive, more dangerous than silica, stopping the clockwork for good, but this I doubted. Of course, there was something else troubling me. Shame. And it troubled me more the further I got away from the needles and drugs and the whole senseless go-round of addiction. When you're an IV drug user, you are so way out beyond the pale that your malaise becomes entangled with the caduceus. You depend on doctors as much as you revile them, and you believe they owe you their health-giving expertise free and on demand. But as I got well, I began to see my body as the carelessly used property of the National Health Service. Damaged goods I would do best to hide away. There was this, and there was the phobia. I suspect that all those who've put needles behind them have to develop a loathing of them, have to reinforce their repudiation with the horror that was formerly swept aside by insensate desire. I couldn't bear to look at an injection being administered on the television, let alone live. I recoiled from all pointy things and from the red gush they dug in human soil. Even walking along the street, the spear-tipped railings caught and tore at my eye. If I saw a motorcycle speeding through the London traffic, on its white top box the life-saving legend Human Blood, I recoiled. My blood may not have been infected, but it was tainted. When I had to have a blood test for this or that suspected ailment, I became tense. I would have to tell the nurse about my past, or else they would try to pierce the still thrombotic veins, and then he or she would become tense, and then it would all go wrong. So wrong. Sitting in the consulting room of the haematologist at Guy's, I heard little of what she said. She was a serious head girl with straight eyebrows and a crisp white coat. I was a shabby delinquent. Or rather, I listened to what she said but didn't register its full implications. At the time, I thought this was because, although I'd given out the strong message that I didn't want to be patronised or spoken down to, the reality was that she was speaking way over my untutored head, And besides, no one really wants to know what's going on in their bone marrow. Whether you consult a physician whose opinions are adamantine, so coated have they been in the hardest of science, or a shaman whose magical operations have been orally transmitted for time out of mind, the patient's requirement is for expertise, while all we have to divvy up in return for this is our faith. When I asked about prognosis, she was circumspect in the way good practitioners are. "'After all, statistics are only applicable to groups, not individuals.' "'I have some patients,' she said, "'who I have maintained purely on venesections for ten to fifteen years. "'Later, much later, the sum came back to me. "'But in the short term there were those venesections to cope with. "'A tourniquet would have to be applied, a vein found, "'a needle stuck through dermis and vascular wall, "'and then no payback, no flushed, warm gush of lotus juice "'or essence of lethe, only the siphoning of my deathly blood.' I listened to what the consultant said about red cell counts and white cell counts and platelets, but these were only so many cubic nylon bags jumbled in the corridors of my mind. I heard her when she said that the venisections, the beginning of a lifetime on the needle, needed to begin right away. That morning, at once, now. In the day unit the dark vinyl chairs tip back at the press of a button and small footrests simultaneously emerge. If it weren't for the way the chairs are arranged in groups, or the fact that the ministering staff wear a variety of unflattering uniforms, I thought, this might be the business-class section of some wide-bodied jet bumbling down to Heathrow along a dangerously low-altitude flight path. After all, here, through the long strip of windows, were the unrivalled views of central London landmarks, Tate Modern, St Paul's Cathedral, assorted other Wren churches that I had come to expect from medical tourism. The only problem was me. I saw spires, lightning rods, phone masts, pylons, and a secular world upon the myriad sharpened points of which I was poised, petrified, lest the slightest movement see me espaliered. It was worse than pathetic of me to be so squeamish. All around me on the unit sat my peers, my blood brothers and sisters with their hemochromatosis and a polycythemia vera, their sickle cell anemia and worse. Some hid their baldness with hats or makeshift moabs, others had exposed flesh that was empurpled by lesions. All of them appeared utterly indifferent to the cannulae stuck in their arms or the backs of their hands. They read magazines or fingered laptops, drowsed between headphones or chatted with friends and relatives, all pointedly ignoring the transparent bags of factor this or factor that being factored into them that hung from stands by their shoulders. A nurse had to talk me through that first venice as I gurned and contorted. I directed her away from the veins she favoured in the pits of my elbows because I knew these had thrombosis and denied her access to the ones that twisted ivy-like around the back of the forearm, because I also knew, in junky parlance, that they were rollers which would worm away from the needle. The needle was, of necessity, thick, and it took a long time for her to get it inside me, but my blood was thicker still, and it took a long time to pulse out of me. To begin with, the staff were perfectly accommodating, and they put me on one of the available beds. Such was my nervousness. However, by the time I got to my third venice they were chivying me towards the business class section. Here, a nurse, infected by my own tension, collapsed a vein on one arm, then, on the other arm, failed to bind the needle into the vein so that it shot out with a gush of blood. Over the following 24 hours, the bruises streaked like sepsis. When I returned to the unit for the next venisection I was back in one of the old bays, back on one of the beds. Here, distraught, I confessed to the trained vampire in her cotton cloak who was having difficulty dowsing for a suitable vein, that I had once been an intravenous drug user. Was it my imagination, or did the attitude towards me on the unit change after this? Was there a certain chilliness engendered in the stuffily antiseptic atmosphere? Before my next appointment with the haematologist, when the phlebotomist was trying to get a blood sample, I fainted and became the cynosure for a bustle of activity, chaired into the day unit and hefted onto a bed. The sensors of an electrocardiogram machine were strapped onto me. I was visited by an impossibly beautiful registrar, who, like all the staff, called me by my given name, William, while she held my wrist and peered down with unfeigned enthusiasm into my eyes. William. No one had called me that since childhood. No one except patronising police reading my identity off the driving licence. It occurred to me that it was this that made it so difficult for me to divine the metaphoric import of my condition. For how could a child be expected to understand such a thing? Two pints a week, eight pints a month. In a couple of months a whole me's worth of blood would be decanted into plastic carafes and laid down, possibly in one of the cubic nylon bags in the corridor. London junkie and criminal slang for blood is claret. But this was a joyless vondage and a useless vintage fit only for disposal. Still, I de-trained in the bowels of London Bridge. Still, I dragged myself past the glassy haunches of the Shard, which, even as I was draining away, grew taller and more pointed. Still, I passed the permanently shuttered door to spiritual care. Still, I mounted the stairs and passed along the corridor. Still, I dutifully applied the antibacterial foam from the wall-mounted dispenser to my sweaty palms and exchanged pleasantries with the reception staff, one of whom had sought my advice on his creative writing. And how horrific was that! I had been gripped by the circularity of my fate which seemed to have been encrypted in the circulation of my blood. What goes around comes around and this professional needlework was the appropriate karmic comeback for all that amateur embroidery but as the weeks passed and i discovered the nurse who for me at least had magic fingers and who could perform the venesections efficiently and near painlessly so my sense of the singularity of my situation receded as well i have some patients my haematologist had said who i've maintained purely on venesections for 10 to 15 years And so it finally sank in that some meant by no means all. Singularities, like statistics, belong to the realm of the metaphoric. Both exist fraudulently in a one-on-one relationship to their own particular metaphorand. But the only real universals are that we all live, and of course we all must die. In the prefatory remarks to her magisterial essay Illness as Metaphor, Susan Sontag notes that we are all dual citizens of the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick, although we all prefer to use only the one passport. She goes on to observe that, of course, illness is not a metaphor at all, and that the most truthful way of regarding illness, and the healthiest way of being ill, is one most purified of, most resistant to, metaphoric thinking. I had known this once, Yet preoccupied by my own history of mental distress, and blinded by my professional malaise—for does not the fiction-maker engorge himself with the similitude of disparate things?—I had looked feverishly for what my bloody disorder was like. It seemed synonymous with my addictive illness, and also to be a bizarre antonym of vampirism, which in turn surely was a metaphor for venereal disease and also for tuberculosis, which in the 1900s was still viewed as repressive of an inflamed and passionate sexual appetite, I had trafficked in illness as metaphor, dealing as a novelist especially in that romanticising of madness that Sontag sees as reflecting the most vehement way the contemporary prestige of irrational or rude spontaneous behaviour acting out. As I got over my culture shock, and came to my senses in the realm of the sick, I saw that the comfort of things in themselves was the only pabulum available or required. The blood pressure cuff cinching my arm. The sensor clipped onto my finger. The nurses in their filmy polythene aprons. To accept these quotidian things was to be open to everything. One of my friends with leukaemia had died. The other was about to have a stem cell transplant. The friend who'd had his tongue and throat therapeutically mutilated lay in bed 20 hours a day, zonked out by the horror of it all. My wife's cancer had a better than 40% chance of recurring within a decade. Even if statistics weren't for individuals, this represented a powerful index of the fact that shit happens. We were middle-aged. A preposterous was well underway. Get over it. Only a culture that had misheard Sontag's advice and instead of excising the cancerously metaphoric assumed that it took benign forms, could have witnessed such terrifyingly silly metastases. We may have tried to normalise cancer with fun runs and awareness weeks, yet still we battle against it in a war without end. We may have tried to normalise the condition of the disabled, yet still our only way of doing this is to organise an expensive Paralympics. We don't want ordinary cripples, only elite ones. Death, the real simile for disease, for when we are ill do we not always feel like we are dying, even if it's only a little, remains, despite our secularism, the most metaphoricised phenomenon of all, the irony being that so-called assisted suicide hopes to make of quitting this world a simple medical procedure. As fast as we could eliminate the metaphors, our science helped them to proliferate. Metaphors were the iatrogenic disease of our era. What, I wondered, would Sontag have made of a gastric band or a systemic shunt, let alone anal bleaching? As for me, I had always relied on the hardiness of my body to aid me in the battle against my fervid mind. Yet now I had cause to examine the last few months, it struck me that my sensibility had been doing good therapeutic work well before my diagnosis. The novel I was working on concerned illness. No surprises there. Indeed, it was more than usually saturated with pathology, since its protagonist was a sort of disease personified. Yet what was the device I had decided upon in order to lend a verisimilitude to this particularly deranged tale? Why? That there should be no metaphors in it at all. Nothing should be defined in terms of anything else. No vampire should be like a filthy leech. Any more than a filthy leech should be like a vampire. In Homo, Nietzsche said that illness was the beginning of all psychology. He might have added that the only possible therapy was a statement of the facts. That was False Blood by Will Self from Granta 117 Horror, read by Max Porter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Granta Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please give us a rating as it'll help other people find the show.